Spent a little time this weekend actually fixing up my computer in the brew house. For some reason, I lost power and all of my monitor settings just went to hell. Like, it was my screen was the wrong size. All of the icons were a little tiny and it was it was a pain. I spent probably, oh, two or three hours actually getting things working right again. And it looks good. Last few episodes of the brew house I recorded, the icons for... Audacity, which is what I used to record, were like a little tiny, but you know, whatever. And then, you know, I was, I, what I was trying to do is, is we have customers that are having this Outlook problem where it seems like Microsoft is just randomly signing people out of Outlook. And it got me thinking, why the heck is everything like so integrated lately? Like everything that Microsoft touches has to connect to the Microsoft cloud, which has to be signed into, and then that certificate goes away, and then you got to re-log in again. I don't know. It it's a mess. So, and then and then when it doesn't work, there's really no errors. Like, oh hey, you just need to log back in again. But that doesn't mean anything because it, it's just like it logged you out. But I don't want to be logged out. I never told it to log me out. I don't know. I I was gonna talk about that today and about how it's disgusting how tightly these companies want to like attach stuff together but you know what uh, to be all on honesty like nobody cares like this is my problem to deal with so today we're just going to pick a bunch of random things that i thought were cool and are interesting and we're going to talk about those so it is monday february 20th and this is the brew house So I want to start here real quick. Uh, I never knew that gu.com was actually a URL shortening service. And uh, it was uh, it was actually a game back in 99. So the domain was registered in 1996. It was some kind of online adventure game in 99. And then during .com, they changed up their branding and did what they do what companies do and they started gu.com the url shortening service and i think it was one of the first ones out there so it'd be bitly and and um, the other ones that are out there and it appears that the gu.com domain is cited in scientific papers and other types of papers and they decided that they're going to put this thing up for sale for two and a half million dollars and they essentially broke the internet um, I think I can, let's see, they published government guidance. So basically like gu.com was used to like for links in, in government papers and things like that. So the argument that this, that this author's trying to make, which I think is actually a pretty good one is that we shouldn't use link shortening services at all for something that's especially in papers or any type of journals or something that, you know, is required to give you that information for the long run because these services can just decide to turn down and not service these short links anymore. And I've, I've, I've kind of argued this for years. Like I use shortening links. If I want to download a file on my TV, like I've got my Amazon fire side loaded. So if I want to like put a Nintendo emulator, that's not in the store on it, I can go and make a short link download it so I don't have to type like a ridiculously long string. That That's how I use shortening services. I never would have pictured in my mind that someone would actually use a shortening service for a scientific paper or for a published paper. You know, you, you use them if you want to send a text message or something. Like, here, go to this link. You don't want to type the whole thing out. 
But wow, I I just find it very interesting that GU.com just shuts down for sale for $2.5 million. It is a two-character domain, which obviously is going to be very valuable. That's probably worth the $2.5 million on its own. But anyways, I, I found this interesting. Oh, here, lots of academic papers with uh, GU shortened links. So this is just a Google Scholar shirt, uh, search. Let's see. Um, why social work students need to be careful about online identities. Like these are papers that people have written. Um, here's one that's MIT Sloan Management Review. How next-gen car sharing will transform transportation. And if I just open that link, let's just see what they, what they cite. Ah, that's going to be too much of a pain to read it. It's, it only shows one page anyways. I did see one, World Underwater, it was called. And um, that one, the GU link, uh, let's see. However, the shortage of protection is only the tail end of the chain of problems that begins in the green hills of England, as Mon, I don't know how to say that name, has explained in some detail in 2014. And then there's the GU link. So that's basically the citing of this person's work no longer exists because it was used uh, in this in this research paper. So I guess that's your warning. If you're writing research papers or anything like that, don't use shortening links. Uh, it's not uh, going to turn out well for you. Okay, I came across something really cool yesterday, and I didn't even know it exist, existed. So Doom version 1.1 supported multi-monitors. Now, you're going to say, well, John, how does it support multi-monitors? It did it over the network. So the same way that you would play with your friends, like in a LAN, it used IPX, SPX. So if you wanted more, more monitors, you would literally have to have another computer and it would, it would wait for the server to come online and then everyone's connected together. But instead of like it being other characters that your deathmatch or whatever, it literally turned those characters into more monitors. I watched a video on this and it was incredible. So the guy actually had four monitors. So he had three. So he had the center monitor for the main view. And then he had zoomed out views on the, on the right and the left. And then above the left monitor, he had another monitor, which was the um, map. The interesting thing about the map, though, is it didn't really work like he thought it would. Uh, the map had to be filled in as the character saw the map. And, of course, the map just pulled up all the time, so the character never saw it. What else is cool is the way that it treats the, it, it was actually ingenious. So the way that it actually treats the other monitors, it treats them as other uh, characters in the game, just like if um, another character in Doom was standing next to you. I found this really interesting and cool, and I didn't even know it existed, but it only existed in Doom version 1.1. In the later releases, it didn't support any of that. It was, um, it, they, they basically removed that ability. And I don't know why, maybe, you know, the thought of having three or four computers back when Doom came out probably was uh, too expensive. <laughs> uh, it, it was a luxury to have more than one computer, if anybody can remember back that far. But I watched the guy play, and oh, what else is really interesting? So normally when you're playing a three-monitor game, you kind of only get what you would see out of your sight. So, like... The view isn't a full 90 degrees or anything like that. The view is like like you'd see out of your peripherals. Well, since it's another character in the game, both left and right sides are full 90 degree angles. So you get a you get the 90 in front of you, or the whatever the 180 in front of you, and then you get the 90s on the side. It's it's pretty incredible. Uh, it, so if you anybody has a copy of uh, Doom version 1.1. 1 
I challenge you to check it out and see how, how awesome it is. <laughs> All right. I found this uh, open source project that I thought was kind of cool. So there's a lot of video cards out there now that Ethereum is no longer and they're cheap for sale and they generally have a lot of RAM because you had to fit the DAG onto the card into the RAM and the RAM had to be fast or whatever. So a guy decided that he was going to create a Fuse library. So if you don't know what Fuse is, Fuse is a way that, so normally a file system, you have to have code in the kernel and that's how the kernel controls the access control list, like who can get access to the files. You know, when you create a directory, all of that stuff has to run through the kernel. So a Fuse library is kind of a bolt on to the kernel that exposes all of that to the user space. The user space is just code that runs on the computer that doesn't need access to the kernel. So the guy created a, a, a Fuse file system to run um, VRAM as file storage. What I find interesting is, is that the, currently the file system, which obviously has some overhead because the user space, uh, because user space is slower and you have to translate it to the kernel layer, but you can currently get a read performance of about 2.4 gigabits a second and a write performance of about 2.0 gigabits per second, which if you run a RAM disk, um, which I've done in the past, it's just basically you, you carve off a section of your, say you've got 32 gigs of RAM and you want to you want two gigs of storage, you can carve off two gigs of storage as RAM. That's not a, a user space thing. That's all built into the kernel and it's super fast. So this is only about one third the speed of um, the current uh, RAM disks. Albeit if you have extra to use, why not? If you're not if you're not gaming or whatever you need that uses lots of memory, uh, why not try it out? And let's see, anything else that's interesting about this? Uh, the, the developers are kind of working to get this thing up to full PCIe bandwidth limits. And I actually don't know what the current um, bandwidth limit is on PC, on a PCI bus or PCIe bus. But all in all, you know, it's an interesting product, project, a way to get you a bunch of RAM uh, or a bunch of hard disk, quick hard disk space. So if you wanted a game or something, you could put it in there if you wanted to run a SQL database or something that's maybe you want to run an Eno database, which can't be run in, in RAM, but even though MySQL has a RAM database, but there's a lot of lockouts and things, you could actually run it on your GPU. But I would also warn you, keep backups because if the thing crashes, you'll lose any data that's actually in the, the, the VRAM. All right, what else do I got here? Oh yeah, okay. So Mark Zuckerberg, or not Mark, uh, Elon Musk is catching a lot of flack for selling his blue check mark. Well, it turns out that uh, apparently this idea is working for Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg is going to borrow a page out of the playbook and start selling basically blue check mark validation on both Facebook and Instagram. So I don't know exactly what the price is, but we do know that Elon Musk, oh no, I do know the price. So it's gonna be priced at $11.99 per month on the web or $14.99 on Apple's iOS. It's starting in New Zealand and Australia. I find it funny that a lot of these, I never heard um, Mark Zuckerberg come out and say anything bad about the, the blue check, but I did, you know, on, on, on Twitter, a lot of people say, haha, you paid for the check mark or whatever. And a lot of times they have a check mark they got because they were 
a person that somebody would know, even though Elon does say that those are legacy check marks and they will be going away. So basically everyone's going to be expected to pay for Twitter, which look, if you're challenged with trying to make a company profitable, maybe start with that. Those people want to be heard. Those are the voices that people want to hear. They're probably going to pay the eleven ninety nine or whatever Mark, whatever um, Elon Musk charges. Why not? I don't know. I, I think this is great. If it would mean that I could see less ads on Twitter and Facebook and everything else, everyone should buy one. Except for me, I won't buy one. I don't find a reason. The only reason I would try to buy one is if I had a product to sell and I didn't seem like I was getting my reach. I would attempt to pay for the check mark to see how much better my reach is. And now that Elon Musk and Twitter have add, added the insights to your tweet, you can actually see how many people have actually seen your tweet. So you, you would have something to compare if you actually did pay for the blue check mark. I think it, there's value in that. So if you're running a company and you've got a product to sell, buy the blue check mark. And I'm guessing you'll see a lot more people that connect or connect with you and, and listen to you. But I could be wrong. I, I really don't know. And I, and I think too, um, what Elon Musk is going to do and probably in the end, Instagram and um, Facebook is they're going to have different colored check marks. So if you're a movie star or somebody that's my, your Bill Gates or whatever, you're high up in tech, you may have a different color check mark than somebody else. And I don't see anything wrong with that. There's, there's no reason that the people that are verified, influential people have a different color check mark. It's one way to verify they are who they are. If I started a if I started a Twitter account called Mark Zuckerberg and I had a blue check mark, people are going to just automatically assume that I'm Mark Zuckerberg. So no matter what I say, they're going to believe it. So having a different color check mark for people that pay for Twitter, I don't see a problem with as long as we could do it in a way that you get the reach you want, which I think that's what in the end, Elon and, and Mark Zuckerberg are going to do, if you pay for the check mark, you're going to get better reach than you do when you don't pay for the check mark. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that as much as the the movie stars and the influencers and all that complain about it, they know that a lot of their revenue comes from these platforms and they've been getting it basically for free. Well, what they're trying to do is fix that so they don't get it for free anymore. I think that's pretty much what I had for today. So, pretty sure i'm on this pretty sweet uh drop your meme uh thing on uh on twitter <laughs> i've enjoy i've been enjoying that today oh i did see one other thing and i and i don't have a lot to dive in on it about but i did read that somebody took their tesla model 3 batteries and they hooked them up to their house and they actually ran their house for two days on a model 3 battery pack now i found that really interesting and cool. Now I've seen some off grid houses even around our area here where usually what you have is you have solar panels, battery bank, a battery to AC and a DC to AC inverter. And then you also have a generator. So what happens is, is during the day, assuming it's sunny, your batteries get all charged up. You use your lights, your TV, whatever, you know, you, you live your life in your house. And then it, when the batteries reach a certain level, the generator kicks on and charges those batteries. And generally speaking, that works pretty good. I, I've heard, you know, a lot of complaints about batteries. Batteries don't last when you recharge them to full all the time. They don't last. In fact, that's one of the things, if you don't own an electric car, that's probably something you don't know. Uh, if you have your car marked to charge to 100% all the time, usually the car will complain at you and say, hey, 
if you charge your battery to 100% all the time, you're going to start to lower the life of your battery. So please charge to 75, 80%. A lot of people don't know that. Anyways, it's there's there's so many of these batteries out there, and these are lithium batteries. A lot of the off-grid houses that I've seen use basically car batteries, which aren't lithium. Uh, over time, they they wear down, whereas lithium, when it's dead, it just drops to zero, but lithium is a really good way of storing the charge. I think that this is a this is a cool idea, and I think in the future with the off-grid stuff, I, in the future, off-grid is going to be way more easier. I mean, power gets more expensive, more and more expensive. So I'm looking right now on on uh, eBay to add a 2021 Tesla Model Y all-wheel drive, all-wheel drive long-range battery pack modules for $6,500 plus $500 shipping. They, I'm sure they are very heavy. So $7,000, buy it now. They are, let's see, I'm looking to see. They are working, so they're tested working. You know, if you can run your house for three days on that, three days at, well, I don't know, I don't know generally what people pay for electricity a month, $500, $500 a month. So maybe 10 months, uh, 11, 12, one year, you'd pay your battery pack back if you could charge them. Every, if you charge them to 100% every day. Now I realize that probably won't happen, so your payback might be years two, three, four years if you decided to go off grid. But even then, that's still not that bad. And the and the footprint of these batteries is not very much. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. And of course, there's no banana for scale, but um, it looks like the bottom of the car. So if you have a utility room already, it looks like you could not so much stack, but you could make a shelf where you could you could put these batteries on top of each other. And then, you, then if you wanted to add more, you could do another shelf next to it, do more, and you could you could put the batteries. I don't even know if you put them in series or parallel. I, I have no idea what the output voltage of uh, a battery is. So, for example, on solar panels, when you build up your DC, uh, you, you, you put your stuff in series to get your voltage up. So, for example, my solar panels probably run at around 600 volts. And then they go into the inverter. That inverter converts, uh, converts it to uh, 240 volt AC. It's looking like the nominal voltage of a battery pack for a Tesla might be 75 volts. So you take you take the three battery packs, four battery packs, put them together. That'll get you pretty close to where you need to be. In fact, it might get you a little bit over. Let's see. Yeah, so you'd need eight battery packs total in series to get you to the 600 volts, which is not bad, but it is gonna gonna set you back $13,000. $13, but it might actually be a little cheaper than car batteries. I don't know, I haven't really done the math. The thing is too, is I'm looking and that's just one that had them all. There are people, 1X Tesla Model S, 85 uh, battery module, 650 bucks. I don't know, it might be a good use of this older technology, especially if there's a way to fix bad cells easily. Um, you know, generally like if, if there's a bad cell on the Tesla, they'll actually pull it out and just put brand new cells in. And I don't know what they do with the, with the current ones that have bad cells that they throw them out or they try to fix them. I have no idea, but I did think that this was kind of cool and how they got a couple of days off of the Tesla battery cells. It's something that's going to be more and more common, you, you know, these batteries laying around. So there's going to be more battery recyclers are going to crop up and specifically ones that deal with lithium batteries. So there may be a market for this in the future to take your house off grid by using old Tesla batteries or old Rivian batteries or whatever. 
I got one more gripe and then we're going to go. So I took my Rivian down to Ames this weekend to, to do a trade show. Was a trade show worth it? Probably not. The, the, they had a really bad turnout this year because there was some bad weather down in Des Moines. I spoke to a few people. I probably had a better lead from the lady next to me in, in her booth um, doing installs in Northwest Iowa than I did with actually members of the the the, the, the trade show. But anyways, um, I charged my, I got down to Ames and luckily my wife booked me a hotel right next to the charger. That was not on purpose on her end. I'm not giving her credit for that because I, no. Anyways, I plugged my car in, went to go check into the hotel. No problem. Waited a little while, made a few phone calls. Then I was like, well, I'm going to go have supper. Went down, back down to the car, which is across the road. Got in my car, headed, headed to supper. There was a Mexican restaurant also like close to the charging station. So I thought when I get, I don't generally like Mexican food as much as I travel to Latin America. Maybe, maybe it's more like the American Mexican thing that I don't like. Anyways, I thought, well, I'll sit at the bar, have a beer. I have, I was a project I was working on. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do all of that. Um, while I'm waiting for my car to charge, it said it would take about an hour to charge. I thought, you know what? I can have a couple of beers and work on this project. So sit down at the bar about, order up a beer about 30 minutes in, I get a warning to my phone saying, if you leave your car here any longer, we're going to start charging you 25 cents a minute because it's not drawing enough power. I looked, it was still drawing 26 kilowatt, which is not nothing. So anyways, I thought, well, finish up the beer, close the laptop, we'll go back to the car. So the, so even though I had my battery or my car set to charge to a hundred percent, I only got about 80% worth of charge, which sucks because I needed the whole thing in order to make it home. Because after the trade show, I went and I went and saw a friend and his dad about some project they're working on that they wanted me to take a look at. So, and it was, that happened to be on the way home, maybe seven miles off, off range. So anyways, I went in and put my, put my house in and I do that, not that I, because I didn't know how to get there, but because I wanted to know what the thing estimated for charge. Anyways, it said I would have like 60 miles left when I got home. Okay, that would be that would be enough. And I, I'd be willing to play that game. Well, about halfway to three quarters of the way home, all of a sudden the thing's like, you're going to have 24 miles left and the thing is red. It rerouted me to stop in early, which is a really small town that has chargers uh, to, to, to put 50 miles or something on the car which is annoying because it said I would have 60 and then it didn't have 60. And I'm sure that cold weather, well, I know that these cars don't work well in cold weather. Anyways, I go to, I go to pull up and charge and there are, there's just a pickup that's not electric, obviously just parked at the, at the electric charge, electric charge. And I get that a lot of people don't care about this kind of thing, but it does slow a guy down to, to have to wait for somebody who's, inside of Casey's. And I think this guy was actually visiting friends inside of Casey's. So it took a long time for him to come out to actually move his car, but no one's going to, even at the Hy-Vee in um, Sioux Falls, they have Tesla charging. There was always other vehicles parking in those spots. So my two gripes here, we need to get more accurate on how we calculate the amount of miles that are going to be remaining in the battery on a trip. When it's cold outside, take that into account 
it should take into account like how the person is driving. Like if I'm driving like an asshole, it's going to drop my battery down more. Or if I'm driving very economically, it's going to keep it the same or make it better. And then I'm going to gripe at the people that park in those spots because us driving, when I drive electric, it's not my, I don't want to stop and charge. I'd rather make it all the way home, but it's just another one more annoyance when you're parked in that spot, when there's obviously 30 other spots you could park in, you did it on purpose. You did it because you don't like that stuff, whatever. It's your right. I get it, but it's not very nice to the guy who just wants to get home. And with that, I'll leave it for today. Have a great Monday.